Successfully capturing people's attention requires more than a hastily written caption and boosted Facebook post, design that is backed by investigation, exploration and an understanding of the desires and needs of end users is crucial if you want to share your passion with the rest of the world and if you want to revolutionize the way people think and inspire social innovation, you need a rethink. Daniela Quacinella is a design researcher with a background in arts and culture management and human-centered design. She has been involved in a variety of different projects in collaboration with institutions such as the Valletta Design Cluster and the Experience Lab inside the Digital Health Institute in Scotland. In her spare time, Daniela enjoys exploring the medium between spirituality and science. So, Daniela, you started in the arts. How did you get into design? Well, I found myself making this shift uh, in my career uh, when I did a practice-based master in design innovation at the Glasgow School of Art. And this master was so different from all my previous background because it was very much based on practice and it allowed me really to understand how design was a tool for me to bring into practice all the previous knowledge that I learned. Let me ask you, what does human-centered design mean to you? Well, human-centered design, uh, it's a really broad term that and is actually reflecting contemporary design practices in general, which put a focus on uh, humans and in understanding people so that uh, uh, it's an approach to problem solving where the designer actually is uh, not only thinking of uh, getting to the solution to a problem, but really reformulating the problem by stepping out from his comfort zone. So he's, he's actually questioning also his personal assumption and he's actually trying to understand who is formulating the problem and what is the problem and seeing how the problem shifts according to who defines it. And so it's about really getting into somebody else's shoes and to start talking with people, understanding their issues, understanding how there are so many multiple perspectives in framing a problem. And uh, the ability of the designer is to actually make sense of all this messy, messiness and complexity and bring together all these different voices. Would you say that design research is more um, problem-oriented in the sense of identifying the problem or more solution-oriented? Or is there really a balance between the two? Yeah, it's really the ability of shifting between these two all the time so that actually there is not a linear path that the designer is doing, but the, the problem is always reformulated together with the solution. So the ability of the designer is to really move between all these different phases where there are moments of great uncertainty where you have actually to change direction. So we can say that you can compare this to jazz music. You know, when a jazz musician is improv- improvising, it's actually then attuned his own instrument to to the one of the other musicians and is following the sound. So it's about being really in conversation with the context, with the situation, and then adjusting uh, your next step according to the new information that is coming in. So in a way, it's really reflection in action. And, uh, and then the ability at the end to get to the solution, but the solution is not fixed from the very early stage, it's emerging. Yes, I love that. I mean, a lot of it is really about adaptation from what you're saying. And I think even other forms of research could learn a lesson or two from the design approach. I mean, the way you're talking about it, because if we're doing uh, research largely in part to improve society, then uh, you need to be doing the everything that you've been discussing, understanding different needs, 
and reflecting, etc. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Daniela, in your, perhaps it would be helpful if we have a bit of uh, context. In your article, we, we frame this idea of design within the idea of like a museum curator trying to promote an exhibition, right? Um, mm-hmm. So if we're going to try and take a human-centered approach to design, does that mean starting with one idea, receiving feedback from the community, and then designing something based on that feedback and back and forth? Or have I misunderstood well, there is not just one way to go. I think that the, the core principle here is really, first of all, uh, understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, you start by actually uh, going in the field and talking with people. So you're not expecting people to come to your gallery and to your museum and to engage just because you're doing a great marketing strategy. But the idea is to really step out from the from the gallery and understanding why the community cannot engage with this museum, for example. And it's really about understanding also community perspective and what they would like to see as well and what they need and how they perceive contemporary art in, in, in this specific context talking about museum if it's a contemporary art museum and uh, and so where human-centered design becomes a way to actually opening up spaces for dialogue and collaboration where you're actually involving the others not only in doing research on them in understanding them and getting data and information out of them but you're actually collaborating with them and the ability of the designer uh, the designer will find the creative ways of engaging with the community. It will find ways of uh, visualizing in a more playful and creative way certain complaints and certain problems, allowing then different people with different mindsets in the community and to come together to step from, from these problems towards creative solution. So the designer has this uh, role of uh, providing the tools and the space and the guidance to actually um, step towards uh, finding new ways of um, of thinking and reimagining certain issues or problems. So there's another, I, I think, uh, interesting word that I'm seeing crop up a lot: reimagine. Uh, what does that mean to reimagine? The way I I see reimagine, like the way I would define it, uh, would be more related to this ability of uh, imagining possible futures. To have that ability for a moment to have a sort of suspension of disbelief, where you're actually not stuck into defined issues and problems that you cannot overcome, but you have that playful attitude where things can be possible and where things can change. And once you bring back the problem, it's not so impossible to overcome if you give yourself the opportunity to be playful as a kid, opening up other possibilities. So it has very much to do with the ability of future visioning and and really reflecting on what future do we want or uh, is the future already set on stone or we can actually shape this future of not being a passive observer of a future that you cannot change, but to actually have a more active role in taking some action to change the things that you don't like? In essence, it is tapping into your part of yourself that's, that's still childlike. Yeah, 
that's uh, yeah, that's a nice way of, of looking at it. I think that uh, the the designer has this uh, double eye. On one side, he has the eye of an artist, and you know, artists have this uh, ability of looking at things with novel eyes, even things that for other people are already you know, well-known, you always have that ability to be curious about things. And the designer needs to have that. He needs to actually question the obvious a lot of times and to actually then also uh, question his own bias and assumption to try to look at the same thing from another new perspective. The, The difference is that you then want to actually find a solution. You don't stay in the realm of imagination, in the realm of possibilities, but you actually then want to get in more the tangible aspect of getting to a final outcome, that it could be a service, it could be a product. So, Daniela, maybe you can tell us a bit more about this quote you mentioned in the article. The focus moves away from objects towards ways of thinking and doing. Yes, um, it comes from really talking about contemporary design practice. Well, first of all, there is the realization of how actually uh, design can influence society. You know, imagine the design of a smartphone or the design of new technology infrastructure. It has a massive effect in the way it influences our behaviors and our way of experiencing the world. So it's about really... Uh, focusing not anymore in just the final outcome in uh, the the product, but really understanding how actually you can uh, design new experiences, you can design new way of thinking. And so the the power that design can have in uh, in this ability of triggering uh, new behaviors and new interactions. And so many design practices move towards the study of uh, deeper values behind what is visible to so the worldview that is behind the whole cultural factors, social, cultural, technological, environmental factors. And it goes deeper in understanding needs, emotions of society, of people and the metaphors that are running in our society. I mean, this this seems to me like it's quite a trend in, in the realm of, of uh, design where you're not promoting a specific object, but you're promoting an experience rather than a final product, right? Yes. There are many different uh, design practices. I'm personally fascinated by using design for social innovation or there is uh, other practice like uh, there is one movement called transition design that is really focusing on transitional times, like the one that we're facing that have to do with a lot of grand challenges such as climate change and healthcare, and really where design takes a different role that is about actually redesigning systems, redesigning decision-making policies. It's really about going beyond the object and I'm having a role more in the way we're actually acting in society and how we can actually uh, also find solution for big challenges. I think that's great that design is going in such a direction. So maybe you could also elaborate because you're talking about social innovation as well. So maybe you can talk a bit about, well, what is social innovation? Social innovation, the way I see it, has to do a lot with collaboration and coming together. So to make change, we need to really tap into our collective intelligence and uh, and come together from many different disciplines because the complex 
challenges that we're facing today cannot be just solved from one discipline. But this is actually a big challenge because to bring together people from very different perspectives and mindset to find solutions is not an easy task. And I think designers are very interested in finding ways to actually overcome this and where people can all come together sharing a same framework and then adding different ideas. So it's this ability then of visualizing ideas or pushing forward certain thoughts and needs and and then working together with this messiness and the designer will synthesize then to come up with ideas and, and solutions that are co-created. So rather than imposing his own perspective. What a designer is trying to do is not just imposing his own view and perspective or just one perspective, but it's about really co-creating and bringing all these values and perspective together. It sounds like you're taking a a dialectical approach to to design. It's rather having a back and forth between various groups of people, right? Yes, yes, it could be like that. Of course, then there are... the, The thing is, in design practice, there is not just one way of doing things. So there are so many different approaches and you can either have the role of a facilitator that is just there to enable collaboration and ideas to flourish or you can actually have a more uh, a stronger role of shaping these ideas and there is not right or wrong. You know, there are just many different, uh, it depends from also the situation and when it's needed because sometimes, you know, people, they say, why I have to come up with idea? That's not my interest. You are the designer, just do that. So it's about really understanding when it's needed and when it's not and so the designer is uh, has to have this ability of understanding the the specific uh, context that he's working in and understanding the needs of the moment i'm curious daniela when you're talking about co-creation i'm not sure if this is something that you've touched upon yourself in during your studies in philosophy but i'm thinking about the ego and In a co-creative process, I think you really have to remove the self in a way. And also um, when you're designing according to the needs of a community, if your design is is involving community engagement and uh, perhaps providing an experience for the people that you're working with, then how does ego come into play and how do you keep it at bay, so to speak? That's a complex question. <laughs> I don't know if I have uh, really an answer for that. I'm thinking about like my first experience with design practice was during my master. And uh, during that master, I, I had to work with people from very different cultures, very different backgrounds, and a very different way of learning and making sense of the world and when we had to work together of course the idea was not just the one of us it was actually also the ability of letting go or saying this is my idea I and uh, and you actually are stealing my idea but actually accepting that uh, that idea was emerging from being in this uh, uh, fertile environment. So even if it was me coming up with an idea, for example, I would never claim it as mine because I knew that that idea was emerging thanks to the conversation and the interaction with with my team. And the same for the other members of my team, that it was always this uh, learning process. And so in terms of putting the ego at bay, I would say that once you actually appreciate 
team effort and the team collaboration and once and then it's okay i mean it's not that hard to to keep the ego at bay uh, it's about really uh, having an ego that is actually made of many different mindsets so that actually your your ego is not as an individual but it's more into understanding your interaction with others personally i i like i like the idea of collaborating with other people but at the same time i feel that if you have to i'm playing devil's advocate here but it, trying to collaborate and keep everyone happy results in nobody being happy okay i can't try and collaborate with everyone at the same time but there has to be a point where you know someone makes the final decision i don't know like what about in design i mean sure you can have as many different perspectives and values from all the different members of the community but there comes a point where you know you have to decide what stays in and what's cut out right Yes, yes, of course. I mean, uh, I thought because I was talking more when you are designing with other designers, when uh-huh, you are a team. Right. So people who are That's aware it. of the process already. Uh-huh. And in the, in that case, uh, really, the idea is co-created because uh, even when you have to make a decision, okay, maybe some members are not agreeing, you get to, then, yeah, you have to come up with a solution. But most of the time, if you created already that, that culture from the start, where you're all sharing, you get to learn from each other's and also you get to then have another mind that is a collective mind. So despite, I don't think there is an issue there. I think what you're saying is when you are developing ideas with the community and of course you cannot uh, make everyone happy. But the thing is that a lot of time you realize that also people bringing up their complaint, they can learn that actually... It's also a learning process from the other people in in the in the workshop. So if you're bringing different members of the community together, they never got the chance to really talk to each other. And so actually, once you're putting them in the room and they start looking at how other people see the same problem from a new perspective or other issues, uh, also their initial problem can be reframed. They can actually actually think in a different way. It's not about making everyone happy. But it's about really bringing to surface what actually arises from bringing together all these different mindsets. I mean, I think this 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 last point that you mentioned, I think this makes a lot a, a lot of sense. Where you have you might have people who think they understand a problem, but when they see it from another person's perspective, suddenly they realize, oh wait, I've they've been missing an entire section, and. Mm-hmm. Being exposed to different perspectives can, I feel, can really help to reach better understandings with one another. Yes, absolutely, because that's, uh, I think, the problem of our contemporary society that creates a lot of issues is that we all believe that our perspective is the only one. We tend, of course, Mm -hmm. we all know that there are multiple perspectives, but then it's so hard to step out from our own uh, way of looking at things because uh, we are programmed in such a way from what we learned and from our specialization and, and what we studied or even from our experience and culture. And it's not that easy not to have bias. We all have our own bias, but it's this ability of having this uh, flexibility and this ability of shifting perspective and just becoming more aware that what you're looking is just an angle 
that's why I think also collaborative research, participatory research is very valuable because as a researcher, you might think that that's the problem and that's what you have to do. And then you start talking with others and you start actually discover new things. And in this process of learning, creativity comes out because when you're stuck with your own ideas, you're not creative because you think there is nothing new that you need to find out. And it's really when you are questioning your own bias, your own assumption that creativity come up. And creativity, it can be scary because it requires you to uh, be in a space of vulnerability, of uncertainty, in a place where you say, oh, I don't know anything. I thought I knew all these things, but actually I'm like a kid learning again. Can you teach me? So there is, has to be that humbleness where you want to learn from others as well. I love everything that you're saying. And I'm not sure that that's something that we talk about enough, that it's a little bit scary, but that's okay. It's going to benefit you in the end. So that's the dialogue around, it's okay to be vulnerable and it's a, and, and sort of uh, get out of your shell a little bit and just uh, get into those unknowns. And I would say that Malta is definitely, um, I mean, you see uh, problems everywhere um, where you have spaces that have been designed without taking in those multiple perspectives, without having a co-creative process. But I would say Malta in particular has a lot of issues with this. Yes, I feel like um, the issue is that uh, some, we, we tend to focus on the tangible aspect of the building or the space, but it's really about the more intangible aspect of experiences, of interaction in that place. So um, how to turn a space into a place is when you're bringing people in it and there are things to do in that space. There is an exchange, there are, um, ex yeah, like interaction in it. And I feel like the, the problem in Malta that I see a lot is really in the way also uh, cities are designed they're not thought from a human perspective from the perspective of citizens and uh, I know I mean I'm talking about obvious things but the whole overdevelopment and and construction it's it's really uh, becoming you know like really unsustainable it's just that there is this tendency of thinking, oh, I'm going to make a really amazing building. It's going to be really beautiful. And so people will like it. And this assumption that just because you're doing something that is new and innovative and it's a museum, then people must must enjoy it. And it's not really about that. It's really about going into the deeper aspects that are intangible. As you were saying, collecting the stories of, uh, of that specific context and... Um, and all the things that are arising from that conversations with the local community. You mentioned something interesting earlier, Daniela. Do you think cities are redesigned for, for people or, I don't know, for commerce in mind mainly? But what are your thoughts on this? I agree with you. And uh, I wish that this uh, can shift. Uh, and so that's why I'm very interested in uh, ideas and approaches that want to shift this. For example, there is a whole world of placemaking, creative placemaking that mm -hmm. has to do really in uh, redesigning cities in a way. What is missing in cities is also spa like spaces for playfulness. Like you go out and buildings are there for consumerism most of the time to consume something to buy something what about actually having more uh, shared public spaces for just 
you know, share ideas, to learn together, to be playful, to be creative. I think there's so much potential in cities to actually uh, design environments that can trigger new ways of learning, new ways of thinking, that can bring people together, uh, rather than just designing, you know, big malls and commercial buildings. And, and that's actually what I tried to do in my final project at the Glasgow School of Art, was really to make a small intervention in an, in the environment, in the city, and see how people would react and what the new forms of interactions that small intervention could trigger. And I thought if just a temporary creative intervention can actually make such a change in people's interaction and behavior, what if we could actually think of more sustainable and not just short intervention, but long-term intervention uh-huh. that can actually uh, make us rethink the way we experience cities. I mean, what I find fascinating is how everything that we've designed, for instance, in terms of roads, in terms of buildings, in terms of infrastructure, it's all designed to make our lives a little bit easier and better. But at the same time, when you put it all together, it just doesn't click, you know? It feels as though the world that we're currently living in, in terms of cities, isn't really designed for us as people. It's supposed to be, but somehow, instead of the world being built for us... No, no, I I agree with you, and I feel... I feel like this, like how design is developing at the moment, uh, most of the time is about can you design the new app and the new technology. And But when I teach design to my students, what I want to push forward is to really question the, uh, what, what we mean for designing something new, expanding our abilities, our senses, is actually giving more value to things. And uh, you would see that a lot of time, there is a lot of things that are designed to make things easier. And doesn't mean most of the time that making things easier is uh, has a positive outcome uh, because it can make us a, a bit more dull or active or less creative, especially commodities and the way that we are in a system that is valuing consumption. Yeah. And then design is inside the system and so it's following that trend. So I really wish we can start a really using design to all open up these spaces for questioning these systems and thinking of to use it for greater needs at the moment because we are in a in a moment of real emergency uh, where there are huge challenges and for me it's so obsolete to still think about designing the next phone or another product we are full of objects so we should start thinking less about objects and more about systems to redesign and about how to start fixing certain problems that we ourselves created I was thinking to myself, uh, as you were talking, uh, we are in a um, consumer-based society, which is, I think, a very destructive and um, horrific kind of society to be in. And I know that sounds a bit hyperbolic, but I would say that we are. And along the lines of what you were saying, that easy is not necessarily better, because if you get stuck in the designing within this paradigm, you are also, I think, encouraging mindlessness. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are doing a lot of things uh, mechanically on automation without thinking, when in fact, we need to be more mindful. I wanted to ask, Daniela, so you're teaching a unit module at a university and students are tasked with reimagining the future of education in 2050. Uh, what are you asking students to design exactly? What I, I want to try to, to, to trigger in students is just to go beyond the technical aspect of design and to 
got them to really think broadly of uh, the more intangible aspect, as I would say. And, and, and so I guide them in a process where they're actually pushed to question current paradigms, for example, giving them a project on the future of education in 2050 is a way to really also understand what's the value of education. Are there new needs So it allows students through a research into cultural, sociocultural, technological, environmental and political factors that are influencing or even the way we learn about things. So it's really more a philosophical perspective that I want to push in the course in making them think out of the box and actually also think in a more ethical way of uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And uh, if I come up with this design, is it going to bring any meaning and value in, and make the world better? And to use future in the brief and to make them think about the future, I feel is a very important thing because I believe that the future thinking, visionary capability, it's a very important skill for future generation, but also for contemporary society because it's really the, the ability of society or the individual not only to imagine alternative possibilities, but also to take action to move towards the desired future. So to give you an example, a really interesting um, anthropologist that I'm very inspired, Genevieve Bell. So she's an anthropologist, but she's working for this big technological company, Intel. And it's fascinating because, for example, she's saying, okay, you know, the current technology that we have, even talking about social media and Facebook, we are very much influenced by this technology, but are they representative of all different groups in society or is just a white male Silicon Valley. I'm gonna go on a limb here, but I would say the latter. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time, even the way design of technology is done is not very democratic. It comes from a small group uh, or, or a niche that is designing for that group. And really, but that impacts everyone. Uh -huh, exactly. And I, I really want to Uh, triggering students the ability of thinking who are the unrepresented groups who is dominating certain stories about the future certain narratives and are we aware of the narratives that we are consuming every day and it's about really thinking of unrepresented groups and, and digging deeper into societal factors and, and how we can actually influence that uh, thank you for that that was a really beautiful response I want to end this with another very challenging question. We are working on a project together called SciCulture. For our audience, this is a project that takes a transdisciplinary and design thinking approach to working with the disciplines of arts, science, and entrepreneurship together. And what and we've had the challenge um, in reimagining futures uh, in the intensive course that we ran. Um, from a philosophical standpoint, we don't have the right to imagine and come up with solutions for a future that isn't ours, that we won't exist in. It's unethical. So maybe we can end with just a, a comment from you on that. I, I would say that what I, I noticed from my personal experience is that a lot of uh, research into Um, philosophy and um, humanities and uh, more intangible aspect of society don't want to get their hand dirty in the aspect of actually implementing ideas because once you have to go that your utopic vision can actually needs to get 
dirty in a way. Mm-hmm. It it's has no longer an ideal. With, yeah, it has to deal with with the reality of the situation. But I feel it's very important that philosophers and that artists, that people that have these great visions, they actually start getting more into how to make them real. Even if it means that your great vision is going to actually have to shift a bit, it has to get not so beautiful and perfect. So I don't feel it's unethical to being to think about about the future for sure. Even if we don't know where the future leads. But we can know where the future leads already in the present. There are so many factors of the present that can allow us to anticipate where we are heading. So it's not that impossible to to start thinking now about the future. It's actually what we do all the time. And we shape the future in every moment. Very, very well said, Daniela. And again, I agree with you. And I think with that, we can wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure, Daniela. Thanks so much, guys. It was a pleasure for me as well. (laughs) 